0: Well, good morning, everyone. Do we need to ask that again? Good morning, everyone. All right. I feel like I'm at the gym, and the trainer has just said good morning to us. And if we don't respond, it's going to be another time. But I'm so glad that you joined us this morning. And how many of you enjoyed the warmest Memorial Day weekend we've had in 60 years? Yeah. That was so fun. We made sure we did lots of outdoor stuff. One of the things we did was take a hike up to the top of Saddle Mountain, and it's the highest point in the coast range. Yeah, that picture doesn't need to stay up there too long. It's a nice sweaty one. But the thing is, we've been up this hike before, but we thought since we have been working out seriously at the gym that this is going to be a piece of cake. And, you know, that hike has a serious incline at the end of it, the last quarter mile, maybe longer. And it's got this grate embedded in the rock so that you don't slip. It's that steep. And it wasn't easy. It really wasn't. And the truth is, hills are harder than the flats. That's the reality. And seriously, in the last quarter mile of this hike, I was thinking about this talk today. And I was thinking, I was thinking that it's really a lot that way when we're talking about our most difficult relationships. Because facing our most difficult relationships is like taking the hills, not the flats. There is no way you can be completely prepared for it. It will never be easy, no matter how much you've done to prepare. And I think it's helpful to know that. David, the man and the leader we're looking at in this Unstoppable series, he knew this. Now, That's why I gave careful thought to what I called this talk today, because on social media, you find all these soundbite kind of titles, okay, things like how to dismantle your enemy without breaking a sweat, okay, or how to win at life in three easy steps. Who believes that? Or what you need to succeed. You know, these titles just really don't fit what God's going to talk to us about today out of the life of David Because we're not talking about easy street today. These are serious inclines. With our lungs heaving and we're gasping for every breath. And we're wondering if we'll make it. We're talking today about our enemies. Those people who oppose us. Those people who might be hostile to us. Sometimes we know why. And sometimes we don't. And those people who actively work to bring harm to us. Now, just by my saying the word enemies, how many of you had your heart rate go up and you started thinking of maybe something or a situation? So the question is, what or who comes to your mind when you think of enemies? I know what mine is. It's fifth grade, my frenemy, That was what I called my on-again, off-again friend who loved to bait me into fighting her, and I succumbed to it every time. I mean, we're talking fist fighting around the teacher's desk when he was out of the room, of course, Um, on multiple occasions, so much so that my mom ended up in the principal's office with me the second time that year that I recall that is. Well, the answer for that little dilemma with that friend, more on that later. What about your difficult relationship? Let's get the spotlight off of me and my problems. Let's talk about your troubled relationships. You know, maybe it's a coworker who complains nonstop at work and dumps her work on you. Maybe it's a fellow student who's trashed you on social media. Or maybe it's a family member who's in so much pain and they've chosen to express that by putting that pain on you, inflicting it on you in some kind of way. Maybe your struggles with a neighbor, being the president of HOA, I just need to raise my hand right here. Maybe your struggles with a neighbor who just insists on doing things that actually do detract from your experience living next to them as a family. And you don't know where you're going to go. Or maybe your struggle is with an international or national political figure. Or perhaps an international group with a cause that you don't agree with. You see, across our lifetime, everyone has enemies. Jesus assumed this when he gave his talk to his followers called the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. You can read about it. And David, the person that we're going to look at in this series unstoppable, was no exception. So the question is, what did David do, and what can we learn from this young warrior, soon to be king, in the eight years of his life he spent running from or being opposed by a guy named Saul? And the big idea today is this, that enemies are a part of life, and God wants to help us express his life Even in our most difficult relationships. So, David's saga with Saul is told in 1 Samuel 13, excuse me, 18 through 1 Samuel 31. So, basically, he finishes the book. And I'm going to summarize it for you, and then we'll look at specific verses within it as we unpack David's best practices in or with our enemies. So today we want to look at this prolonged but early difficult time in David's story. It's just one chapter in his biography, but it's a chapter that a lot of people wish wasn't there. And the reason they wish it wasn't there is because they know it means something for our lives. The fact that he had to go through what he went through. So David, after being anointed the next king of Israel at age 15 did not have an easy ascension to the throne and it all started with David's great success as a leader of the troops on the battlefield here's what it says in 1st Samuel 18:5 whatever mission Saul sent him on David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army or in his troops this pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well now i say so far so good right He's out there fighting valiant battles for God and country and king. He's a supporter of Saul's, if you will. But have any of you ever heard the sage advice, if at first you don't succeed, you will have a lot more friends? (laughs) It takes a moment, but I think you'll get that. Yes, if at first you don't succeed, you'll have a lot more friends. David knew this reality because when David came back from that epic battle with Goliath that Rick talked about last week, the women in the towns came out with their musical instruments and were dancing in the streets, welcoming the army of which Saul, King Saul, was at the head of them. And this is their refrain. Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul's response to this was not good. As you can imagine, David's success got to him. 1 Samuel 18, verses 8 and 9, it tells about it. It says, Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They've credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept his eye on David. He kept a close eye, it says. Now, this might bring to mind another quote, quote, whose source has never been discovered, but it was made famous in a movie I'm sure none of you ever saw. It's called The Godfather <laughs> because you're so spiritual, you wouldn't have seen that, but me, I did. And it's this quote keep your friends close and your enemies closer. And this is exactly what Saul did. Quite literally though, this is when all hell broke out. The very next day, an evil spirit comes upon Saul and he tries to spear David to the wall while he's playing the lyre. That was just an ancient harp, a smaller one um, that you saw the earlier picture of, of David with. He would play that for King Saul and it would bring relief from this spirit. And while he was doing that, David escaped twice from Saul trying to spear him to the wall. So Saul starts looking for ways to neutralize the threat because you see, Saul was afraid of David. For two reasons. The Lord was with David and Saul knew it. And the Lord had departed from Saul. His favor was no longer on him because of his disobedience. His decision to go his own way. To live life on his own terms. To fight the plan that God set in motion. And to not follow God's, take orders from God. And this extended into his treatment of of David. So Saul's looking for this way to neutralize the threat You know, because David's not only a threat because God's with him, but he's also this amazingly popular war hero with all of these amazing exploits. And his popularity was also a threat to the power base that Saul was counting on. So to get rid of David for once and for all, he offers one of his daughters, Merib. To him in exchange for David's continued deployment on the battlefield. His thinking is, if I give him my daughter Merib, I get in return constant deployment out there doing battles with the Philistines. And the Philistines will take care of David for me. Right? The more battle times he spends on the battlefield, the greater the chance that they'll kill him. So this was a master plan for Saul. He thought it was great. But David inadvertently foils Saul's plan, because of his humility, he refuses the offer, saying, who am I? And what is my family or my clan in Israel that I should become the king's son-in-law? This amazing humility that releases God's grace. So Saul gives Merib to another man. His plan seems to be apparently striking out. But then he gets word that his younger daughter, Michael, loves David and he thinks, I can use this. I'm going to ask him to be my son-in-law once again. But this time, he comes and makes the offer with a plan in hand because he knows that David's going to have something in response. And he does. David does the same humble response to this offer of Michael, the younger daughter. He says to him, do you think it's a small matter to become the king's son-in-law? I'm only a poor man and little known. Is that amazing? Incredible humility. Humility. But this time, Saul was ready, and he had a solution. He gave him a way to earn his bride, a bride price. He said, you need to collect 100 foreskins from 100 Philistines. And that'll be the bride price. Can we just say, ouch? I mean, let's be real here. This is not pretty. So we pick it up in verse 27 of chapter 18. It says, David took his men with him and went out and killed 200 philistines and brought back their foreskins. Okay, so he doubles the amount, right? He's going to make sure he gets this bride because he, he really loves her. So he brings these back. But now, it, you know, we say, often say to you, put yourself in this story. I don't think you want to be in this story unless you're David. Okay, because here's what they did. They counted out the full number of foreskins for the king so that David might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave his daughter, Michael, in marriage to him. And in verse 28, it says, When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter, Michael, loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him. And then this really sad commentary, And he remained his enemy the rest of his days. He made a decision. For the rest of his days. Now, Saul continued for several more years in active pursuit of David with multiple attempts on his life. He even asked his son, Jonathan, who happened to be David's best friend, to take him and his attendants and go kill him for him. Oh, but this was not something Jonathan was willing to do, and he actually talked his dad out of it. On another occasion, David said to Jonathan, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there's only one step. Between me and death. So what we're talking about here. Is this young man in his 20's. And he is living with real death threats. From the king of the land. The thing is. Two times. The tables got turned on Saul. And David had the upper hand on him. And ended up being in a position. That he could have killed him. And ended this nonsense. Once and for all. But David refused to do that. Each time he made a choice to leave Saul's life in the hands of God, not his own. And he finally comes to this crossroads after multiple attempts like this in 1 Samuel 27, 1, where he says, but David thought to himself, one of these days I'll be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me in Israel and I'll slip out of his hand. So that's exactly what he did. He lived as an exile in the Philistines in a town called Ziklag. But finally, there came this epic battle between Israel and the Philistines. And Saul and his three sons die in the battle. By this time, though, David has spent most of his 20s from age 22 to 30 trying to survive this king that he was anointed to succeed. This king who he loved and respected. This was not David's first enemy, as we know from his early story, nor would it be his last. But it may have been the most heart-wrenching of them all across his life. How many of you have ever thought you knew somebody, and you looked up to them, and then you got close to them? And you got to see what they were like up close and personal, and it wasn't pretty. It wasn't what you thought. It's what we call being disillusioned. Well, the thing is, David here, he was a young man who loved God. He loved his country dearly, and he respected and loved Saul. He was the first king the nation had ever had, and he had grown up with him as king. So David, during this time, experienced emotions that were all over the map, as a lot of us would, and a quick glance at the Psalms that he wrote during this time, reveal what his emotions were doing because he describes himself with these words, brokenhearted, afraid, distressed, disgraced, scorned, even depressed, and yes, angry. As he describes for God in some of those Psalms exactly what God can do to take care of Saul for him. Right? Have you ever done that? Sit God on him. Go get him. And that's kind of what he did. Well, when we encounter difficult people, when we encounter enemies in our lives, we need to remember David. Because he shows us four best practices whenever you encounter an enemy. And I want to review those with you today, and then we'll take communion together. The first of those best practices is this go to God first. David was committed to God and to following him through any opposition. When I said that this chapter of David's biography was covered all in First Samuel 18 through chapters 31, I wasn't telling the whole truth because actually the Psalms are filled with some... There's about at least eight of the Psalms were written while he was running from David. And just taking a look at one of them gives us a little snapshot of where Saul was at with God during this time. He's in a cave hiding from Saul... Here's his words to God in Psalm 57. Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy. I look to you for protection. I will hide beneath the shadow of your wings until the danger passes. I cry out to God, the Most High, to God who will fulfill his purpose for me. He will send help from heaven to rescue me, disgracing those who hound me. My God will send forth his love, being kindness and his faithfulness. I'm surrounded by fierce lions who greedily devour human prey, whose teeth pierce like spears and arrows and whose tongues cut like swords. Be exalted, O God, above the highest heavens. May your glory shine over the whole earth. My enemies have set a trap for me. I am weary from distress. They've dug a deep pit in my path but they themselves have fallen into it. My heart is confident in you, God. This is the deal. David was committed to his relationship with God. He knew that God was with him, and he was counting on and had confidence in God to deliver him from Saul. But David was also fully human. He got it wrong sometimes. But this is the thing about him. He kept coming back. To God, He refused to give up on the discipleship journey. That journey of following Jesus. Of putting one foot in front of the other. Of keep on climbing even when I'm on the hills. Not just the flats. And even when life does not make sense. As it did during this period for him. Now Paul gives us, the Apostle Paul, this prescription that was a way of life for David, not just through this eight-year period, but through all of his life. And it is go to God first. Philippians 4, 6 and 7 says it this way. I know we talked about this a lot through the election season and beyond, but it's an all-the-time instruction. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with Thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God that transcends, that surpasses all our understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So I was a young woman just entering my 30s, um, and this idea of going to God first had been reinforced a lot in my life, but especially about going to God with anyone that causes you anxiety. And at this time, it was reinforced for me with my stepmom, Bridget. I was cleaning the bathroom and praying for my dad. And I heard the Lord say, why don't you pray for Bridget? Now, I realized in that moment, I truly was not conscious of it before then, that I had never prayed for Bridget, ever, in any way. Now, after a brief protest with God, where I explained to him that I tried not to think about her, much less pray for her. Now, any of you know how protests with God go? Yeah. Yeah, it's only the beginning. You know you're on a course with him when you start that. So I began to pray for her. Now, God did something amazing when I started praying for her. He asked me to love her, to bless her, to do good to her. And he told me, press into the relationship and find out what that looks like for her. But you see, I had a hard time thinking about what that would look like because to me it felt like to do that was being unkind to my mom, even disloyal. And I felt like my mom had suffered way too much already. This is just the thinking of an adult child they go through. Divorce hurts everyone, right? So over time though, God showed me what to say and what to do for her that expressed love to Bridget and at the same time showed respect. And honored my mom. Now it was not a blueprint that he gave me; that I did, took the little plan from my prayer time and I went out and enacted it. No, it was a conversation with God that lasted over a decade. C.S. Lewis said, "Prayer doesn't change God; it changes me." That's what happened. When we pray, the Holy Spirit works in us to help us become more aware of what He's up to in a person's life, even the most difficult relationship that we might have at that given time. And He begins to speak to us and show us what to do and how to love them, how to express His life to the people who oppose us. The first and most important best practice is go to God first. But the second best practice might actually surprise some of us because we've been taught that avoidance is a coping mechanism that isn't always good, right? But I want to surprise you because the next best practice is this. When you're facing an enemy, a difficult relationship, the second best practice is to avoid the conflict, at least temporarily. You see, David found a way to avoid Saul. And when that was no longer possible, he moved to another country for four years. He took purposeful and inconvenient steps. And I'm saying those words on purpose for us. Because God may ask us to take purposeful and inconvenient steps to protect his life and avoid the conflict until it became impossible without leaving his own country to do so. So he went to great measures to avoid further conflict with Saul. Let's just review him. He went on the run. He hid in deserts and caves. He faked insanity. Now, I would have liked to have seen a movie film of that one. But David became a refugee in Philistine territory. Unless you think that wasn't anything to him, the Philistines were longstanding enemies of Israel. And David loved his country. And he loved God. And he knew they were God's people, and he didn't like the idea of having to go live in Ziklag, but he knew that that's what he needed to do to avoid the conflict right then with Saul. Romans twelve eight says, if it is possible, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with everyone or live at peace with everyone. And David was just trying to make life work until God did what he was going to do. So remember my fifth grade frenemy? My mom was brilliant. Of course she was. She raised six kids. She's amazing. But she made sure, her strategy was to make sure that I was in a different class in the sixth grade than my said friend. Now, she did this to keep us away from each other because she knew that we both needed to grow up a little bit before we could handle each other. But the truth is, for all of us, sometimes we need some time to pray think, think, and do before we jump into a head-on confrontation with that person that we have the difficulties with. We need the time to cool off so that the executive portion of our brain, that prefrontal cortex, can kick into action. And I want to assure you that as a fifth grader, it didn't kick in for a while, okay? It only got worse before it got better, but bless you, mom. So this is a shift, this Avoiding the conflict at least temporarily is all about a shift from being reactive in the relationship to proactive in the relationship. And that's what David chose to do. So we go to God, we avoid the conflict at least temporarily, and we forgive our enemy. We forgive and let it go. David left the judgment to God on Saul's life. And the essence of forgiveness is to release the other person to God and his judgment and release them from our judgment. And we have to do that over and over and over again as many times as the situation that you're facing with that person warrants So David says from his hiding place inside a cave in Psalm 57, I cry out to God most high, to God who vindicates me. He sends from heaven and saves me, rebuking those who hotly pursue me. He had entirely given over what was going to happen to them and said, God, it's yours. You're in charge of that. And he pulled his hands back from it, even though his own life was at risk in the middle of it. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Now, I'm not going to go through all the definitions, In the Greek of all those words. But let me just assure you that they've covered all of the forms of bad feelings that you can have toward an enemy. Every kind of anger and just upsetness you want. It's covered there and it says to get rid of it. And the only way to get rid of it. It's not like trying to work it out on my own. It's just to let go. Let go of it. But not into some atmosphere. It's let go of it to God. Hand it to him. That's what David did. But I have to be honest with you. Let's be real. Do we always do that? Is that what you feel like doing with an enemy? No, a lot of times what we feel like doing is payback, buddy. Maybe I'm the only one who likes that. But isn't that what we feel like doing sometimes? It's like the trucker who was sitting in this roadside diner, and it wasn't just any diner. It was his favorite diner, and he was having his favorite meal there. It was mashed potatoes and gravy, meatloaf, and green beans. Now, this is really mean to inflict this on this crowd. How many of you, your mouths are just now squirting? Yeah, because we're getting toward lunchtime. This was his favorite lunch. But just as he began to eat his meal, a a motorcycle gang came in the door and they took the table right next to him. And they had too many people, so they couldn't fit him at the table. And the ones that weren't came to his table and looked at him and barked, Move, we want that table. Now the truck driver calmly says, I haven't finished my meal. Well, one of the motorcycle toughs takes his dirty finger and just swipes it through the potatoes and gravy. And then Licks it, eats it. And he said, May, that's not bad grub. And then another guy who was left standing without a table took the guy's cup of coffee and he poured it on what remained of the guy's meal. The trucker stands. He wipes his mouth with his napkin. He puts it back. He gets up and goes to the cash register, pays for his meal, and he leaves silently. Now, by this time, all those bikers are laughing out loud, and one of them says, "Uh, ain't much of a man, is he? To which the waitress replied, and he's not much of a truck driver either. He just backed his rig over all your motorcycles. (laughs) You know, don't we love that? (laughs) You know, revenge is sweet when it's somebody else's, you know, and we're not going to get in trouble for it. There's something in our nature that, that longs for that. It isn't God's nature. It is our human nature. It's our humanity. It's the lower nature, what's called the flesh. But here's back to what God wants us to do and to what David did in Romans 12, 19 through 21. It says, "'Don't take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it's written, it's mine to avenge. I will repay,' says the Lord." On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And in so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Don't, become over, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So David refused to harm Saul, even when he had the opportunity, and seemed justified. And I might add, his attendants all wanted him to kill him on the spot. They encouraged him to. Instead, We go to God first, we avoid the conflict, at least temporarily, we forgive and let it go to God, and finally, we love them right where they're at. We do good to our enemies and our difficult relationships. Now David loved Saul and he did good to and for him. He fought valiantly as one of his warrior soldiers. He played the liar for him, as I mentioned earlier, to bring him comfort and peace. This was a regular habit that they had so that the evil spirit that was tormenting him would give him rest. He refused to harm him or kill him even when he was given opportunities to do so. And finally, he did not take advantage of Saul's growing unpopularity in his own popularity. You see, he was a war hero, a decorated war hero, and he could have really counted on that. He didn't use his popularity to draw away Saul's supporters. Instead, he put together this band of outcasts to be his army so that he wouldn't be intruding on Saul's. But even at his death, David mourned his fallen leader with this lament That was really a tribute to him. It actually goes for about 11 verses, but I wanna read you just a verse and a half because I think it captures the essence of David's attitude towards Saul and his conviction to the very end of Saul's life to let God be the judge of this relationship. He says Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and admired, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. Daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. You see, David loved Saul in spite of his many attempts on David's life. I have to tell you, I think it's nothing short of miraculous, his attitude toward him. But it really sounds familiar because it sounds a lot like Jesus' words to us in Matthew 5. Where he says, you've heard that it was said to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be children of your father who's in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. His sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Love is doing what's best for another. No matter what it costs. David did this for Saul. And it came at great cost. It would have been so much easier if he'd killed him while he had the chance. His life would have started sooner in his reign. But David trusted God and loved Saul to the end. My niece, Whitney, and she was actually here with us last service. She's a trauma nurse, and I mentioned a couple stories from her in Iraq where she spent a couple months working with Samaritan's Purse in a field hospital in one of the cities in Iraq where ISIS was trying to claim or reclaim the city. And she would care for these victims who had been maimed by these bombs. It was moms, and it was children, and Right alongside of them, on the stretcher next to a child who'd been blown up would be the ISIS soldier that she would also have to care for, who had been responsible for this bombing. And she was asked by a friend on her return if she got angry when she was caring for those ISIS soldiers as they lay next to those children. And she wrote this in an email to us. As I thought back, I was shocked at my answer. No, I responded, Wondering to myself why I wasn't angered, the Lord showed me. The men of ISIS are men that are so heartbreakingly lost. I saw their faces. I bandaged their wounds. I heard their stories of at times being forced to join ISIS or be killed. Many of them so young and impressionable. I watched as they asked us why we were so kind to them telling us that they had only heard of how evil we were. You could see the dismay as they realized the realities they had built on their beliefs begin to fracture. I realized that the men of Isis, she wrote, were the same as so many others. They were just men lost, deceived by the false reports of whatever truth they'd been fed. And for the first time in my life, I began to have a new understanding of how our Savior could hang, crucified, and look out at those who were doing it to him and say, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. She said, at times we mourned as we just discharged some of our enemy combatant patients, knowing as we discharged them and sent them to the Iraqi general that they would inevitably be interrogated and promptly executed. I realized that it was here that I began to really learn what Jesus meant when he calls us to love our enemies. David points us to the only one the only one in all the universe who can help you and I forgive and love our enemies and make our way forward in difficult relationships. He shows us the way to another king, King Jesus, who ushers in a whole new kingdom, a kingdom that makes what some call unreasonable demands or requests of us, requests like loving our enemies, like Saul did, like David did with Saul over and over again, like Whitney did with Isis, like I was told to do with my stepmom, Bridget. But none of what we're being asked to do has not already been done for us by Jesus. It's what he did when he went to the cross. And he is here today for you and me. Whatever your story, he's here to help us navigate the enemies we encounter and the opposition we experience, even when it's on the extreme end, like Saul's and David's. Jesus knows what it's like to be hated by enemies. He knows what it's like to be unjustly treated. Only in his experience, he never sinned. But he's here today to help us our lungs heaving, our gasping for breath as we take the hills instead of the flats in agreeing to follow him in how we treat those who oppose us by choosing to forgive and to love, by, yes, sometimes avoiding the conflict for a time. Remember, there are no blueprints, but there is an ongoing invitation for conversation. A relationship with Jesus where he'll unfold what to do in that moment. So my question for us today is I want to invite you to consider what your next best step is. There may be someone or someone's here that your next best step is to say yes to what Jesus did on the cross. You've actually, did you know we were all born into this world with an enemy? We were all born at enmity with God. And Jesus came to take care of that root problem and then come and give us his life so we could express that same life to others. And today could be your day to get right with God. It's as simple as saying yes to him. You'll hear his story in these songs we're going to sing and in the communion that we're going to celebrate. And I invite you to do that. But maybe today you're ready to go public with your faith. It's time for you to show, tell God and everybody that's in the room at the time that you're with him. And the way we do that is baptism. That's what Jesus gave us to do. And that's gonna happen next week. So if that's something you'd like to do, you can write it on your connection card. You can go to Info Central afterwards and let them know, or you could just catch one of the pastors. But last and certainly not least is what God is speaking to us about as well that has to do with the difficult relationships in our lives. Is there somebody that you need to love and that God's speaking to you about today? Is there something you need to do next? In just a moment, you're gonna get a chance to share that in a small group taking communion together. The thing is, here's the challenge. To tell a group of people that you may or may not know that you need help requires humility. David was amazing at this in his younger years, and the Bible says that God releases grace to the humble. So I want to encourage you, literally encourage you, give you courage today as we take communion in just a few minutes to go ahead and share that and let your group pray for you, and God will do something for you and help you.